2014, the graduation speech at the University of Texas got big play. In part, it was because it was in the aftermath of Osama bin Laden's death and the special forces, in that case, SEAL Team 6, uh, had executed that mission. The head of all the special operators at the time for our military was four-star Admiral William Henry McRaven. He was invited to give the speech there, and he made an argument that really captured the attention of many, and the speech has been listened to. He made this argument. The flourishing life is built on some basic fundamentals. And he argued the most basic fundamental is to make your bed. Take a listen to just a few minutes of his graduation speech at the University of Texas in 2014. Every morning in SEAL training, my instructors, who at the time were all Vietnam veterans, would show up in my barracks room, and the first thing they'd do was inspect my bed. If you did it right, the corners would be square, the covers would be pulled tight, the pillow centered just under the headboard, and the extra blanket folded neatly at the foot of the rack. It was a simple task, mundane at best, but every morning we were required to make our bed to perfection. It seemed a little ridiculous at the time, particularly in light of the fact that we were aspiring to be real warriors, tough, battle-hardened seals. But the wisdom of this simple act has been proven to me many times over. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task, and another, and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made, <laughs> that you made. And a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. So if you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. I will not ask for any raised hands this morning on who made their bed before they came here. As a culture, we are getting farther and farther away from fundamental life habits that make for human flourishing. The United States of America invented basketball. James Naismith at the turn of last century invents it. Late 19th century, he invents it. And for years, we dominated the world competition. But then, about 20 years ago, we started losing a game here and there at the world championship to the astonishment of those who had watched it through the years. What's going on? 
Why are we losing? And it was determined that we are losing because an emerging generation who love to play games have never worked hard at mastering the fundamentals. So this year at the World Championships, we did not win. In getting away from the fundamentals, we've lost our edge. So it is with the church of Jesus Christ. We've lost our edge of influence out of a lack of discipline in sticking to the fundamentals. Admiral McRaven was using a page out of the Apostle Paul's playbook in Romans chapter 8, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. Would you turn there with me this morning? Let's return to these habits that lead to flourishing. Here are the basic habits of a follower of Jesus Christ living in an age like ours. These are basic fundamentals which must be observed. Now watch for the picture with me. The imagery is, watch for the time words. Verse 12, it's night. Verse 11, we are awakening as night is expiring. We are called to be awake. Verses 12 and 14, we're getting dressed for this new opportunity in this new day. Then of all things, uh, we are greeted with debts to pay after we get dressed for this new day that we have. So watch, that's the imagery that he uses. Let me read it to you. Romans 13, 8 through 14. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, today I want to give four answers to this critical question. 
Here's the critical question. How do we follow Jesus in this age of gathering darkness? And I'm going to take my answers from the four imperatives, commands that are in this passage and these verses. One question you may ask was, may ask along the way is, do these four answers to the question, how do we follow Jesus in an age of gathering darkness, sound anything at all like General McRaven, who argued that making your bed was the foundation for a great day? How do we follow Jesus in an age of gathering darkness? Four answers. Number one, we wake up, a new day has dawned. Look at verse 11 and verse 12. By the way, are you a slow riser? Or are you electric at first eye-opening of a brand new day? It's funny to watch our grandchildren now. We have one little man, one infinitesimally small second after he is awakened. It is like somebody plugged him into a 220 line right into the box. He's on fire as soon as he gets up. Now his sister, she is a slow-moving vehicle. She gets in the fetal position with various gesticulations with her blanket, and she's really slow at waking up. And she'll traverse from one place to another underneath the blanket in different renditions of the fetal position until she finally gets there. Uh, this passage begins with a challenge in verse 11. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. When you're asleep, you don't know what's going on. When you're awake, you are alert. Verse 11, you know the time that the hour has come. And one question this passage asks of us is, do we know what time it is? Do we know what time it is? Remember Jesus, when he was turning the water into wine at the wedding, and all the pressure was put on him to solve the dilemma of running out of wine in the middle of the reception? Jesus said, John 2, 4, my hour has not yet come. The hour for him to reveal with clarity who he is to the world, my hour has not yet come. Of course, he did show several that miracle that morning or that afternoon. Now, then in John chapter 12 and verse 23, Jesus said to his men before they went up in the upper room, John 13, my hour has now come. You get the distinct impression that Jesus was alert and alive and aware to what hour it is. Now, is the church in America there? Are we there at Calvary Baptist Church? I suppose we get more sensitive to time as we get older. Life doesn't last very long. But notice how this strikes a tone of real encouragement. The vibe is not, we're running out of time, and it's tragic, but the vibe is, isn't this wonderful that we are one day now closer to realizing 
what God is going to bring in Jesus Christ. And remember, we get discouraged by the brokenness of our world, but we are headed to where Jesus said, behold, I will make all things new. And that sounds extraordinarily wonderful. He is coming to heal the earth. I love to sing Joy to the World, and I know we usually sing it at Christmas, and it's a great Advent piece, but it's actually a piece that looks forward to his coming. No more let sin and sorrow reign, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing known as far as the curse is found. We're, we're, we're a day nearer. Be encouraged. Don't be discouraged. Ah, it's better today than it was last Sunday because we're seven days closer. It's going to be better in November than it was in October. Is that our perspective? That's how Paul wanted us to look at time. He sounds a tone of encouragement. Verse 11, certainly the night, yes, it is here. But it's far gone. And it holds no promise for the future. It's not going to survive in the end. But will be put down. In fact, the night is already giving way to the morning. And the dawn is just around the corner. We're a day closer to the realization of our hope. Verse 11's point is that salvation gets nearer and nearer to us every day. Hallelujah. Who's fired up about that other than Teresa? I appreciate that. You know? <laughs> By the way, do you sing like you're fired up? You know, we had a thoughtful brother tell us recently, you know, I grew up in a place I could hear all the people singing. Now, you put 400 people in an auditorium that seats 1,200, that's part of the issue. And I know you all love the balcony, and we love everybody who loves the balcony. Be great to sit closer together. You ever stood to sing a song and heard somebody else's voice better you ever stood to sing a song and heard somebody else's voice and you knew what they were going through? Better, as you thought about what they were going through as they were singing that song and you heard their voice, your heart began to sing itself because you thought, if they can sing going through that valley, if they can sing facing that disease, if they can sing facing that setback, if they can sing facing that disappointment, it's one of the glories of singing together. By the way, how did you sing a moment ago? Um, oh, I love the songs that we sang this morning, those lyrics. And you say, Eric, well, some of them I, I don't know as well. Um, get to know them. Our God is for us. Oh, I, that rings in my heart. And, and gives, I, I love that. Wake up, a new day is dawn. Now, the second command is this. Change your clothes and get ready for living in the daytime. Look at verse 12 and the second part of verse 12, 13 and 14. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Notice the metaphors, clothing. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. 
Verses 12 and 13 are very famous verses in church history. God has used his book in a billion and billion and billion ways through the years. One of the ways he used it was in the 5th century, there was a man who lived and he had a godly mother who prayed for him. And he chose the way of the flesh rather than a way of giving himself to our Lord Jesus Christ. And he gave himself to sexual excess. Very common, even unto our day. He fathered a child out of wedlock and got bound up in his spirit with the natural consequences that come with what happens when you live life in such excessive indulgence. And he's really a broken guy. And pondering his own brokenness one day, of all things, in despair, he heard a voice of a little girl singing. And it was some song that had two lines in it that were repeated, a line repeated, take up and read, take up and read. Well, for some odd reason, maybe it was his praying mother, who knows, he said, oh, I'm going to read the Bible. So he got him a Bible and he opened up and he looked down and he read this. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And St. Augustine gave his life to Jesus Christ and received Christ into his life. And since the 5th century, the church has stood on that guy's shoulders and stood up and held on to fundamental issues of the faith. And it all stemmed from a wonderful conversion to Jesus Christ where Romans 13 set his soul on fire. It is possible, and this is what Paul is calling us away from, it is possible to live a double life. Yeah, Eric, I know Jesus. Well, in Scripture, the knowing of Jesus leads inexorably to something. You begin to live more and more like Jesus. And the absence of living more and more like Jesus is a telltale sign that maybe you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior and you are just living a double life. Charles Kuralt was a travel correspondent for CBS for years. Uh, famous for driving on roads, really cool roads in the West, and then giving video correspondence. He even wrote books about it. If you've never been on the Beartooth Parkway coming down to the Silver Gate at Yellowstone, he said it's the greatest road in America to ride on. It's switchbacks up and switchbacks down coming in the Silver Gate. And it is really cool. And, and one day, we weren't even planning on it, but got on it and then realized, oh, this is the road that Corralt talked about. But the other thing not known about Charles Corralt until he died was that he had two families. He had one out east. Was it Connecticut? And then, New York City area, uh, but he, he had that ranch out west. Yeah, he did have that ranch out west. He had two families, and the western family, after he died, said, we want the ranch, and the eastern family said, what, who in the world are you? Well, he, he lived a double life. 
He was one thing on the East Coast and another thing out West. Oh, I said, that's terrible. That's unheard of. Do you know how many are one thing on Sunday? And they have another life outside of Sunday. Oh, I'm glad you have a life with us on Sunday. Change your clothes and get ready to live in the daytime. All of us had to figure out how to get through COVID. It was hard. Thank you for your grace. Just loving each other came through. But, you know, we, many of us had to figure out how to work from home. Clearly, it wasn't good for me to work at the table in the dining room so many linear feet away from the refrigerator. You know, it's just that, that, that didn't work. But I was trying to figure out how to do it. And what I found, an odd thing happened. If I got up and exercised and showered and dressed for work and sat down and got started, my day was a whole lot better. I was ready for the day. Uh, if I didn't, um, I, I, and we're all different, and maybe you work very, maybe the best, your best days of work are in your pajamas or whatever you wear to bed, you know, but that, 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 that wasn't me. But I had an intentionality about the day when I did that, and I found that little goofy habit helped me. That's what Paul's getting at here. Except it's not a goofy habit about work. It's a holy habit about living. Hosea said this, and think of his cryptic descriptions of such behavior, verses 13 and 14. They are all adulterers, always aflame with lust. They are like an oven that is kept hot while the baker is kneading dough. Verse 13, not orgies. That word means carousing around with sexual experiences with others. Drunkenness, which is self-evident. Sensuality, which is a life driven by the baser instincts of what some call the animal passions. I saw a buck the other night driving my car, and he's huge. And I thought, wow. That big buck has survived because he's been shrewd. Now, I should have asked Eric Swinford. He knows all this. He could tell me what time rut is coming in this year. You know, But uh, whenever rut comes, that guy's going to be in jeopardy because he's going to lose his mind. And he'll run out in front of the car chasing a doe because it's rut when otherwise he wouldn't do that and he wouldn't take those risks. Do you know what is said that the most creative people in the world are adulterers? And the schemes that they conceive of to cover our sin, cover, what's that mean before God who sees everything? Have we put off the entrenched inclinations of the old life? Did you see it? Put on. Verse 12, put on. Verse 14, cast off. Verse 12. Is that who we are? You know, uh, let us lay aside the weight that so easily besets us and run with patience the race that is set before us. Hebrews 12.1, that verb, lay aside in Hebrews 12.1, that's the verb here in Romans 13. It's the same word changing clothes, 
getting ready for the day. Then he says in verse 14 something very strong. It's important. Make no provision for the flesh. Zero. Nada. Nothing. Are we making any concessions to our baser instincts? We cannot be too vigilant. In the last 40 years in pastoral ministry, time and again, walked through issues of pornography, adultery, coveting, embezzlement, entertainment choices that were refiguring people's minds, strip bars, prostitutes. Oh, Eric, I haven't done that. Okay, I, I know we're all holy. I'm not, I need grace. But do you realize that you can mess yourself up reading Fox News? About that, there's a vibe in conservative journalism that I don't appreciate. Um, you know, conservative political ideas are to conserve, supposedly, values, uh, faithfulness, celebrating marital faithfulness. And yet, the more you get into stuff, you find out things about people, conservatives, who are not behaving conservatively. Governors you thought were great. Attorney General's estates you thought were amazing. And yet we're, we're also weak and frail. None of us are beyond that. So God gave us Romans 13 to help us. And he's helping us with this. We put on, verse 12, the armor of light. It's interesting, the armor. Now he looked like it the other night. I felt bad for him, but when George W., uh, Bush threw the first pitch out for the uh, World Series game the other night. It was really a bad pitch. But he'd had a better excuse years ago. Maybe he still had the same jacket on because after 9-1-1, when he went out to the mound, uh, he was really layer, layered up underneath all of his coats with stuff because there were some who feared that others may try to take a pot shot at him, literally, uh, while he's out there. But man, did he deliver a great shot right down the plate, you know, he bounced one in there this week to start the World Series, but uh, maybe he had armor on this week. That's, that's the verb here. Put, that's the noun, put your armor on. Because to live for Christ in our age is to be involved in a struggle between good and evil. Actually, really, the very nature of what it means to live for our Lord. We're involved in a cosmic battle against evil. The life we've been given to follow Jesus is a different kind of life. Wake up, a new day is dawn, change your clothes and get ready for the daytime. The third charge is this, don't put your pajamas back on and go to bed, nighttime is over. Look at verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, current social norms are changing, and I can't stay with all of them, and, and I, I'm, pop culture, I, I'm, I'm just kind of lost these days. And, and we've gotten new habits in how we dress, and now, you know, pajamas to Walmart and restaurants is a thing. 
not my favorite thing, but it, it's now a thing. And, um, you know, whoever had them first, but now slippers are for more than the bathroom tile floor. You, you, you wear those where you go. By the way, if you have slippers on this morning, your slippers are beautiful. You know, they look really nice. Um, what he's saying is, we have to dress, we have to clothe ourselves. He's not playing. But do you know how inappropriate it is to go somewhere? Have you ever gone anywhere and, and you weren't dressed for it? I went to a meeting this week, a lunch. And I was business casual, had a nice golf polo on, pair of dress slacks, dress shoes, and everybody had a coat on. It's like, oh, I probably should have worn a coat. But it was hot and I didn't want to put my coat on. I had one in the car. But then later I repented of it as I sat there and looked around the room, everybody was there. He's getting it dressing right. You've seen this commercial, it's 30 seconds. Think of the inappropriateness of showing up someplace dressed wrong. I'm really nervous. I don't know what I should wear. Just wear something not too crazy. Remember, it's a business dinner, not a costume party. On the Spotty Network, this is what she heard. Just wear something crazy. Remember, it's a costume party. Costume party? Yes. Don't trust first impressions to just any network. Go with T-Mobile, the crown jewel of 5G. Anybody want to split a turkey leg? Now we laugh at that commercial, but that's dipping into the heart of what Paul's talking about. Do you, ha- do you know how inappropriate it is to face a day not dressed right? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put off the life that we used to have. It's about getting dressed. We've read this in Colossians. We've read this in Ephesians. Here it is again. As we grow up in Jesus toward maturity, we put away habits of the old life. Isn't that what Paul's getting at? Did you hear Brad read it, 1 Corinthians 13, 11? When I was a child, I acted like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. I gave up childish ways. Fleshly things are childish. We are to disentangle ourselves from darkness. Ephesians 5.11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. That's a fitting epitaph for how a lot of people live, the unfruitful works of darkness. It's why we need Jesus to put on his life. Verse 13, live properly. What's that mean? What does it mean to live properly? Decently, not shamelessly. Live like Jesus. He living in us. And there's a lot of proud, pharisaical people who, who uh, read a passage like this, you know, and they're going through it and reading it. Not in orgies. No, that's right, preacher. Not in drunkenness. No, I know, not drunkenness. Not sexual immorality. No, amen, preach it. Not sensuality. Yeah, them terrible people out there like that. They just don't use amen too much when they get to quarreling and jealousy. And it's right there next to those big ones that we like to emphasize, or so some argue. Are we given to quarreling and division and jealousies here? 
at Calvary. Verse 14, put on Lord Jesus Christ. In business coaching, they'll help you get a resume together. And then before you go to the interview, they'll say, now, what are you wearing? You got to dress right for the interview. Dressing for success. This is about dressing for life. Have we or have we not put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Finally, wake up, a new day is dawn. Change your clothes and get ready for living in the daytime. Don't put your pajamas back on and go to bed. Nighttime is over. The day has come and you get out of bed to meet your obligations and pay your debts. Now notice verse 7. He's introduced this notion of paying. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. And respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is due. Get the verse 8. Oh, no one anything except to love one another now let's stop oh no one anything that verse has been chewed on and talked about for years in the church what does that mean you have some say i'll tell you what it means it means whatever you do don't have a mortgage you got a mortgage you're violating romans 13 8 they say that for their personal life i don't have a mortgage why don't you have a mortgage because the Bible says, if you get a mortgage, you're disobeying the Lord. That's about finances. Oh, it is. But where does it talk about finances? What is owed and what is paid? Is it money transactions here? What's in the, you know, the word love shows up five times. Isn't he making an argument about how we owe it to each other to love? What well, says, owe no one anything? Charles Spurgeon, the preacher in London at the end of the 1800s, had this view. J. Hudson Taylor, famous missionary who took the gospel to China, had this view, and they would never go in debt. You see, well, Eric, I don't care what people do personally. Well, here's what happens is once in a while, a church will talk about whether or not they should take on debt, indebtedness. Thank God we are not in debt in this moment at Calvary. I suppose through the years we have been. I don't know enough about the history, but unless Wearsby took up a big offering in 69, they probably had to go to the bank and ask for a couple dollars to get this thing done. Um, taking out debt on an asset that will appreciate, I understand that not to be debt. Well, I'm not crazy. Let's all get in debt. But if you have a mortgage on your house, you haven't violated this verse, as I understand it. And better men than me, Spurgeon and J. Hudson Taylor, have believed that you would. I don't think that's in this paragraph. And so when churches come together and say, hey, we'd like to take on this indebtedness, retire the debt, develop this asset, use it. Some have stood, stood put their heels in, and they said it's... Romans 13, 8. But notice what the debt is about. The debt is about love. Now, by the way, if we were an African-American church, and uh, we are not, and, and they're full of great life and enthusiasm and uh, one playful, fun thing, and yet they take it joyfully serious. There's a preacher all lathered up will say, turn to your neighbor and shake your hand, fist in their face with your finger out and say, I owe you. And so then everybody does that, you know, and they're all, I owe you, I owe you. Sometimes that's said in anger, desiring revenge. 
And then the preacher, you know, pulls the string. He says, now, what you owe that person that you just shook their hand in their face is unconditional love. What happens in a marriage when the husband gets out of bed and his mission is to pay that debt to love his wife? What happens when a wife gets out of bed on a mission to love her husband? What happens to work groups when they're committed to each other and they look at each other and say, I owe them love. Five times the word love shows up here. This is a part of putting on this new life. It is not debt in finances. It's the debt of love. Doug Moo said this, we owe a debt we can never repay. And if we really believe that, it would shape the fabric of how we relate. The summary of the law, look at verse 10. The summary of the law, the whole law, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Why do we not commit adultery? Because we love our neighbor. And we love his wife. Why do we not murder them? Because we love them. Why do we not steal from them? Because we love them. Why do we not covet and desire what somebody else has? Because we love them. We love our neighbor as ourselves. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. At the heart of fulfilling the law is love. You fill a church full of people who get out of bed, put their clothes on, lay hold of the day, realizing the darkness is passing, the light has come, and say, I got to go pay my debts today. I love that phrase, I'm indebted to that person. Maybe they started a small business 20 years ago, and they were, it was tough, and they needed a start with some cash, and somebody gave them some cash, and the thing really took off, and you go visit the guy's office, and he's got a picture of, you know, Brother Gumball gave him the money. Say, who's that? Why? why? Oh, and they'll say, ah, we are forever indebted to that person. Why? And they'll tell you the story. I did a funeral for a lady, and after the funeral at the meal we were sharing afterwards, a lady came up, and she had had this particular lady who came up for this story of the deceased. She'd had like nine children, and in the midst of birthing, I don't know, was it seven, was it six, was it her fifth, and they're kind of on top of each other. Um, she faced postpartum depression and got in a really dark hole. And at that time, when her family life seemed to be crumbling, this friend that I had the funeral for, she came, knocked on the door and came in. What do you need? And what she did was she just took the whole family and did whatever had to be done to help her walk through that postpartum depression and just got them back on track. And she, she said, I will forever remember what she did. She was saying, I'm, I'm in her debt. She loved me. She paid that debt. She gave that to me. You fill up a whole church of people like that and you have a place that's full of health and life. Last night at the men's event, I watched a guy help another guy who's suffering work through the evening. A, be able to be there, making sure it was right for him. And uh, I just loved him loving him. I thought, what's he doing? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's just paying his debt. Do we really carry a sense that I owe this to you? That's what this passage calls for.
calls for a burden in our heart that says, I owe them. That burden stems from the essence of knowing Jesus. We love because he first loved us. And when we receive him into our life, when we experience that love, it shapes how we relate to others. And this is not just Sunday speak. It's uh, the stuff of Admiral McRaven. Just basic stuff. Waking up, getting her clothes on, staying out of bed, paying her debts. Father, use your word this morning. You know who's here. Sometimes people aren't given to love others because they've never been touched by your love in a deep way, and I pray that you would touch them this morning and open their heart to believe in Jesus Christ. Sometimes people are not first given to love because they've been hurt so bad by others that they feel like their loving capacity has been crippled by the bitter experiences that they've had. Lord, we've never received anything from you but what we did not deserve. Oh, Father, help us be moved by who you are. It's true. We're indebted to you. Work in our midst, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.